0: Well, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm the pastoral assistant here at Crawford Avenue. Uh, I'd like to say welcome, especially welcome you if this is your uh, first time visiting or if you're our guest this morning. Uh, We're thrilled that you've joined us this morning. I'm going to be preaching today as Gary read from Psalm 33. So stay on uh, Psalm 33 in your Bibles. If If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you, and it's on page 463. Page 463. I'm going to pray. Lord, we love you. God, you are our all-powerful creator. Lord, you are huge, and yet you are knowable. And God, I praise you. You are trustworthy, and you are praiseworthy. I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning through your word to trust in you more and to praise you passionately. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, this morning I'm going to start off, I'm going to teach you two new words, or maybe new words, two new words, two big, long, scary, intimidating theological words, transcendence and imminence. okay, they don't bite, let's, let's say transcendence together, transcendence and imminence. okay, transcendence means huge, far above other different independent and immanence means close and near and the bible teaches that god is both transcendent that god is huge and powerful that god is independent of all creation and the bible teaches that god is imminent that god is close that god is near that this huge god he doesn't just not care about his creation but he's near The main point of my message this morning is that God is praiseworthy and that God is trustworthy because God is both transcendent and God is imminent, okay? That's the main point. So if your friend who thinks they know everything invites you to lunch today and asks you, what was the sermon about? I want you to kind of perk up and say, imminence and transcendence, and you put them in their place. God is trustworthy and God is praiseworthy because God is transcendent and he's imminent. The outline this morning, I have three points. First, God is praiseworthy and God is trustworthy. So that's, that's one point, God is praiseworthy and trustworthy. My second point is God is transcendent. And my third point is God is imminent. So first, God is praiseworthy, and God is trustworthy. Look at verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 20 20 through 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And then skip down to the end of the psalm, the last three verses, verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because he trusts in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So this psalm, which was a song that was sung by God's people, the nation of Israel, this song starts with a call to praise God. It's saying, praise God. God is praiseworthy. We should praise him. Look at verses 1 through 3. There are six. In these three verses, there are six commands to praise God. I'm going to read them. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. So we, hear, so we see here that this praise involves music and instruments. It's good to use music and instruments to praise God. Thank God for those who lead us up here in praise and song. Verse 3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully, skillfully. That's why I'm preaching and not up here playing. And passionately. Shout for joy with loud shouts. We're to praise God with fervor and passion. It begins, verse 1 begins, shout for joy. Verse 3 ends, shout for joy. The, the, the picture here is a group of people who are saying, God is praiseworthy. They're getting rowdy, shouting. My main man Herb over here, after the power of the name, he said, yeah. God is worthy of our praise. God is praiseworthy. So that's how the psalm opens. And then the psalm ends by saying, God is trustworthy. God, I trust you. We can bank our lives on you. Look at verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So here's the structure of this psalm it begins with a call to praise. God is praiseworthy. And then it ends with the call to trust. God is trustworthy. And then in the middle are all the reasons why we should trust him and why we should praise him. It's almost like a sandwich. You could think of the top, trust in God. The bottom, uh, the top, excuse me, praise God. The bottom, trust in God. And then the meat in the middle are the reasons. Trust in God, praise God because of this. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. Verse three ends. It's saying, shout for joy, praise God. And then verse four, what does it say? For, because, for the word of the Lord is upright. Shout to him, play skillfully, worship, because there's reasons to. And this is, this, is, this is an aside. This is not the main point of my sermon. But I just want to say, right here, we see that right thinking about God and passionate praise of God should go together. That uh, what, is, what about a vision for us as a church? Not to be a church that's like all head, all head. All we do is we love theology. We, we love studying. We love doctrine, which is great. Praise God for that but it's supposed to be connected to our hearts. Truth and passions are supposed to be working together. Our head is supposed to be working with our hearts. So here's a, here's a caution, because I fit into one of these categories. Some of us may fit into a category where we tend towards like the heady side. We tend towards, we love studying, we love um, deep doctrines, but then... It doesn't, sometimes it doesn't affect our hearts. It doesn't move us. Theology is great, doctrine is great, but its intent is for it to move us to change our lives so that we praise God. Or on the other hand, some of us may fit into a category where we love like the uh, passionate praise, we love like the worship feeling, but then we don't really, it's it's a challenge to think deeply about God. You know, it's kind of like, I just want the giddy feeling. I just want to sing some songs and and, and make myself feel uh, emotional. But it's disconnected to truth. And I think an implication from this psalm is that truth, head, and heart, and passion should be connected. That we should worship God deeply and passionately But we should seek to know God intimately, that we should seek to know truth. This psalm says, Do both. This psalm says, Love God with all your mind and love God with all your heart. Okay. Brings me to point number two God is transcendent. God is transcendent. That God is praiseworthy and God is trustworthy. Because God is transcendent. Look at verses 6 through 11. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts to deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded And it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Okay, I said that God is transcendent. Remember the definition of transcendence. When we say that God is transcendent. I'm saying that God is far above, that God is independent of creation, that God is huge and powerful. And we see right here in this psalm, God's transcendence in two things, that God is the almighty creator and that God is a sovereign ruler. We see God's transcendence in that he is the almighty creator. Look at verses six through nine. In Genesis chapter 1, the uh, the Bible teaches that God created the entire universe out of nothing. That God spoke it into existence. There was no plants. And in uh, Genesis 1.11, God said, let there be vegetation. Let vegetation sprout forth from the earth. And the Bible said, and there was plants. That God isn't dependent on creation. That God is so far above creation that he is huge and powerful and magnificent. He's not limited. And this is what verses 6 through 9 talk about. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He spoke it into existence. Verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. This is getting at the idea. The waters of the sea, the deep... uh, in storehouses, this is getting at the, the idea that God controls the powerful oceans, the powerful waves that we like to get thrown about in. That God controls them like water in a jar. The power of water, the power of a rip current or huge waves. God just says, "I move it around like I'm in it, like it's in a little jar." God is huge. Verse eight: Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be; he commanded, and it stood firm. God is praiseworthy. It's saying, "Praise God, because he's transcendent; he's huge." And that's not the only reason. Look at verse ten and eleven. The second, re- the second uh, hint of God's transcendence is that God is the sovereign ruler. His transcendence has shown that God is the sovereign ruler. Verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. God's the sovereign ruler of the universe. Earlier, John was singing a song. Who can stand in your way? The answer, nobody. He does whatever he wants to do. Look at verse 10. Look at the the nation's counsel and the nation's plans, people who oppose God. Look at the difference between the nation's counsel and plans and God's counsel and plans. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. They're nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. It doesn't happen. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. God wins. This illustration could break down in so many spots, so don't, so don't think too deeply about it. But have you ever played a board game or some type of game with an eight-year-old? Or better, have you ever played a game that an eight-year-old created and asked you to play with them? It's terrible, especially if you're competitive. You think you're going to win. You're doing everything right. And then you get all the cards. And all of a sudden, this round, is like the daily double reverse. He gets all your cards plus double. I'm like, let's go outside and play basketball. I'm going to post you up. God wins. God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it. God is transcendent. God's the sovereign ruler of the world. And listen, here's the application. We can trust Him. To be honest, sometimes when I see things that may be happening in my life or happening out there in the world, let's say uh, Christian virtues are vo- voted against in the Supreme Court or something happens on the political scene and I'm thinking, no, 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 this isn't how it's supposed to go. God wins. God hasn't lost control. All throughout the scriptures, sometimes we even see that God uses the plans of those who are trying to oppose him, those who are playing defense against him. Sometimes he uses those to advance his purposes. One example of this is in Acts 8. Think of the early church. A man named Stephen, a guy named Stephen is a leader in the church. This thing's just getting off the ground. And Stephen gets murdered for his faith. He gets killed for his faith. And you would be thinking, if you're sitting there, God, what are you doing? Aren't you in control right here? And then more than that, the Bible says a great persecution broke out against all the Christians in Jerusalem. God, we're running for our lives. Where are you? The plans of those who are opposing God look like they're winning But what happens? The rest of the books of Acts teaches this is actually what God uses to take his message to spread Christianity beyond Jerusalem. This actually is what God uses to grow his kingdom. God sits on the throne. God is the ruler. Even when it looks like my life or this world is spinning out of control. So that's point number two, that God is transcendent. And point number three, God is imminent. God is trustworthy and God is praiseworthy because God is imminent. And by imminence, I mean that God is near, that God is close, that God cares about his creation, that he isn't uninterested, or he isn't far removed, just kind of like, I don't care about him, I'm so far above him, but the God is close. Look at verse 13, verses 13 through 19. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man, from where he sits in throne he looks out, on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the heart of them all, and observes all their deeds. A king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine." Here we see God's eminence, that God is near, expressed that God is the caring father. God is our caring father. I want you to notice something. I'm going to read these verses again, and I want you to notice the references to God's eyes, to God's seeing, to God's vision. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue Okay, so God, it's saying, he sits on the throne, he's huge, he's transcendent, and he looks out. He sees all, he sees everything. But now look what it says. It says that God has a special eye to care for those who trust in him. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those whose hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The eye of the Lord. This huge God who sits on the throne has a special eye to care for those who trust in him. God is the caring father. As I was thinking of this, I thought, I thought of uh, different, th- different times I've seen a mom jump for their child. Thinking, thinking of like a time where a bunch of children are at a playground or at a park playing. And there's a lot of, you know, moms hanging around right here watching. And they're watching all of them. They see all of them. But they have a special eye for their child. The eye of the parent is on their child. And have you ever seen a time where a child's about to fall out of a swing or up on the monkey ropes and about to fall down? I mean, the mom starts moving towards them before I even see anything happening. The eye of the parent is, sees everybody, but the eye is on her child, to care for her child. And the Bible right here teaches that God's eye is on those who trust in him. God is trustworthy, and God is praiseworthy. We should praise him because he's near, and he cares about his children. God is the almighty creator, God's the sovereign ruler, and God's the caring father. And here's why this matters. I want you to imagine if God was one of these, but not the other, okay? So first, I want you to imagine if God was only portrayed in the Bible, if God was only like a really gentle, caring person. What good, what hope would I have when I look out and see all the evil of the world? Or what hope would I have when I look out and and see everything that's going wrong or even my own life? Why would I pray to him? He can't do anything. If God's only caring and close, I might could cuddle with him, but I can't worship him. I can't trust in him. Or imagine, on the other hand, if God was only the sovereign ruler. Imagine if only if God was the almighty creator. It could be terrifying. God might be powerful enough to do something, but I'm going to kind of hide around the bushes and make sure he's okay before I go out and ask him. The language here in verses 13 through 15, I want to show you something. The language here actually makes you Uh, reasonably expect that something judgmental is about to come next, okay? In the Old Testament, and this isn't all the time, but sometimes in the Old Testament, when you have references to God seeing things, to God looking out, it's commonly followed by judgment. I'm going to give you two examples. Genesis 6, the flood, Noah and the flood. Genesis 6, 5 said that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. He saw it. He looked out from his throne. And then what happens? The judgment of the flood. Or Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. When everyone's <laughs> gathering together, disobeying God, and building up a, a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11:5 says, And the Lord came down. I like that. He came down. The huge God peeked down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. He came down to see it. There's a reference to his vision. And then comes judgment. He uh, uh, confuses all their languages in an act of judgment. Keeping that in mind, I'm going to reread verses 13 through 15. Just look at verses 13 through 15 right now. Keeping that in mind that not all the time, but sometimes in the Old Testament, when God sees, he sees the children of man, he sees everything, judgment sometimes follows, might follow, might follow. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He observes all their deeds. He looks out. With all this in mind, think of the terror that would co- that could come next. Think of what may come next. And he smites them in their sin. Or what about, he delivers a cosmic left hook to them. But no. What does it say? It doesn't say that judgment, it doesn't say uh, judgment is here. It says But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. On those who trust him. The eye of the Lord watches over those who trust in him. And this brings us to the cross. This brings us to the cross. The eye of the Lord. God's caring, tender compassion. Fatherly care is on those who trust him. How can we ultimately know that God is trustworthy? How can we ultimately know that God is praiseworthy? We look at the cross. I want to pause here and just say that if you're here, and if you're, let's say you're not a Christian yet, you're not quite to that point in your journey, in your walk, In your life, I would just want to say, what hope do you have that everything's going to work out for your good? You know, like I've heard my non-Christians friends who I love dearly, something bad goes and they're like, ah man, you know, everything's going to be okay. I'm like, maybe, we don't know that. But there's hope for those who trust in Jesus For those who trust in Jesus, that Jesus paid for your sins, there's no punishment or smite left for you for God. We only have the eye of the Lord on us. And if you're not a Christian here today, you can receive this today. You can walk out of here knowing that God cares for you and God loves you. This almighty, huge, powerful God cares for you. The cross is the ultimate reason that God is trustworthy and God is praiseworthy. And so here's my final application. We're we're, uh, landing the plane with this. If you struggle to praise God or trust God, if you're in a season of struggling, I would just encourage you to look at the cross. This psalm says there's several reasons that we should praise Him and we should trust Him. And ultimately, I think that We can praise God and trust God because of the cross. There's been several times in my life where I'm in suffering or something's going wrong or uh, maybe a health issue or something, and I'm just like, man, is God even real? Well, never mind. I have to believe God's real. I'm up here preaching. But is God, does God care for me? Is, is, Is there any point to this? What is going on, God? This is terrible. You get a bad diagnosis. You lose your job. What is going on? And I just encourage you to say, look at the cross. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Even when I don't understand, even when it doesn't look like God cares for me, even when I don't feel like I can trust him, I look at the cross and I say, you know what? Even though it doesn't make sense, God gave Jesus for me. He cares for me. I can bank my hope on that. I can bank my hope on the cross. God is trustworthy, and God is praiseworthy. Let us have a vision for a ch- as a church to be passionate praisers of God. That it gets, in whatever way it looks like for us personally, because I know some of us may be more demonstrative than others, but that it gets rowdy in here. For God and deep lovers of his word, that he's praiseworthy and that he's trustworthy. We praise him greatly and that we trust him deeply. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. God, I'm just going to say, I thank you right now that I can talk to the almighty creator of the universe who spoke this whole thing into existence. That this almighty creator, this all-powerful God is knowable, is loving, is kind, is righteous, is just, and cares for me. God, I pray that you would be with us, Lord. I pray that we would praise you passionately, especially in a season of thanksgiving right now. I pray that we would praise you passionately. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you deeply. God, I pray for those right now in the congregation who are in a valley of life, who are in um, a time of suffering, a time of darkness, a time when it doesn't seem like you are real, it doesn't seem like you care. If you are real, then you must not be loving because how could you put me through this? God, I pray Lord, that you would show them your love for them. And I pray that you would uh, gaze, take their eyes and fix them on the cross. God, I need that so much. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.